Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Our program today is a talk that John Hanna gave at the Burning Man uh, Festival in 2003. In fact, it was the first of uh, the Palenque Norte lectures that we promoted that year. You know, we didn't really have a good idea of what we're in for yet. And right in the middle of his talk, in fact, a dust storm blew in, and everybody in the audience had gas masks and dust masks on, but good old John just kept talking away, so uh, uh, he didn't let it disturb him. He was a real trooper, I'll have to say that. In fact, John is such a trooper that the night before the first talk, he came over and actually had to help us uh, put the roof on the pod that we had the talk in. So I don't know many speakers that build their lecture halls and then uh, come give a talk the next day, but John's one of the one of the good guys that can do stuff like that. As most of you already know, John uh, has been a pillar of the tribe for quite a long time. My, my first introduction to John's work was uh, actually came from Terrence McKenna. He at a conference uh, I was at in, I guess it was summer of 98, and uh, I remember Terrence saying that if you didn't have a copy of John's book, you really hadn't started your library yet. So, of course, I went out and got a copy right away, and uh, was quite blown away. The uh, book he had out at the time, in fact, he's got it uh, available now in uh, a later edition. Uh, it's called The Psychedelic Resource List. And uh, I just, uh, rather than give you the details, I'd suggest you just go out and get it. It's uh, exactly what it, the title implies. It's a psychedelic resource list, and uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. You know, the, the first time I actually met John was uh, at the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii, and I guess it was in the fall of 99. And to make a very long story short, uh, John and I became friends, and he eventually edited my, uh, my book, The Spirit of the Internet. If you're a member of the MAPS community, by the way, I'm sure you've seen some of John's work on the special art issues he's done for their bulletin. And his most significant contributions to the tribe, in my opinion, are, are twofold. One is the Mind States Conference, and uh, we just had a very successful Mind State 6 up in San Francisco not long ago. And you can read more about that online at www.mindstates.org. M I N D S T A T E S dot org. And the other major project uh, John's involved with is the uh, he's he's uh, one of the contributors uh, and supporters of the Entheogen Review, and that's uh, E N T H E O G E N R E V I E W dot org. The Entheogen Review. And if you've never uh, had a copy of that in your hands, you don't know what you're missing. So check it out. When I first uh, asked John to give a speech at Burning Man, uh, he jumped right into the fray and says yes. So uh, putting together our, our program, I just thought it was fitting that he give the first lecture since John's usually the guy behind the scenes, you know, the, the wizard pulling the levers behind the conference scene. And personally, I think John really set a good tone for these talks and set the rest of the speakers up in pretty good shape with the audience. But you can decide this for yourself because here's John Hanna discussing his ideas about drug-inspired metaphysical concepts. I think that uh, Lorenzo's comment of me putting something together is an overstatement. So this, this is going to be very loose uh, talk, and I also want to encourage everyone to participate in this process and share stories related to the topic that they might have experienced 
Um, but before I start, I wanted to thank uh, Lorenzo and Mercy and uh, Carla and Don and everyone who's yeah. put this incredible camp together and spent so much time folding um, cardboard, which, uh, you know, is, is cool. Um, so, let me think, how do I want to start this? I think I want to start this with uh, just reading a quote from Allen Ginsberg that is kind of describing, I think, a very accurate description of the psychedelic experience, uh, because I feel that this description sort of relates to the idea of drug-inspired metaphysical concepts. Um, and uh, probably everyone here is familiar with uh, R. Gordon Lawson, and he is, was a banker who first um, sort of rediscovered or was involved, one of the first people involved in rediscovering the psilocybe uh, mushrooms. And he has postulated that uh, the origins of religious ideas come from the use of psychoactive drugs. And I don't know whether that's true necessarily, but certainly it's one uh, avenue to uh, religious or spiritual type of thoughts. And so, Anyway, I'm going to read this quote from Allen Ginsberg, which I think sort of encapsulates that idea. So this was in Playboy magazine. What does a trip feel like? A creeping sensation comes over your body, a change in the planetary nature of your mammal eyeballs and hearing orifices. Then comes realization that you're a spirit inhabiting a vast animal body containing giant apparatuses, holes, circulatory systems, interior canals, and mysterious back alleys of the mind. Any one of these back alleys can be explored for a long, long way, like going back into recollections of childhood, or going forward into the future, imagining all sorts of changes in the body, in the mind, or in the world outside, inventing imaginary universes, or recalling ones that existed, like Egypt. You then realize that all these exist in your mind simultaneously. Slowly you approach the mysterious feeling that if all these histories and universes exist in your mind at the same time, then what about this one you're, quote, really, unquote, in, or think you are? Does that also exist only in your mind? Then comes the realization that it does exist only in your mind. The mind created it. Then you begin to wonder, who is this mind? At the height of the acid experience, you realize that your mind, the same mind that's always existed in all people at all times, in all places. This is the great mind, the very mind that men call God. Then comes a fascinating suspicion. Is this the mind they call God, or what they used to call the devil? Here's where a bum trip may begin. <laughs> if you decide it's a de demonic creator, you get hung up wondering whether he should exist or not. To get off that train of thought, you might open your eyes and see you're sitting on a sofa in a living room with green plants flowering on the mantelpiece, um, blah, 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 blah. So I'm not going to continue with this, but um, I thought that that was a pretty good description of the uh, sort of spiritual aspects. And so part of what I wanted to just put forward, and I don't have any answer to this, is what uh, what is the idea of spirituality, where does this come from, what, what is it that we think of as spiritual um, or metaphysical, and I think that it's the sense that we get that 
this material world is not all that there is, and that there's something beyond that, and that when we're in these enhanced states of mind, we experience that sort of timeless moment that uh, seems very, very real when we experience it. And all manner of ideas might come to us while we're in that state of mind that seem very real and valid. And then we come back to this state of mind, and a lot of them might, you know, in, in reflection here, seem sort of crazy. And so that fits in with the, the Beyond Belief theme of Burning Man this year. And I wanted to talk about a few of the more well-known uh, people who had sort of kind of nutty ideas, let's say, uh, that were drug-inspired. So the first one that I'll just mention briefly, who you're probably all familiar with, is Terrence McKenna. And Terrence went to uh, the Amazon in 1971. He was 25 years old, and he was on a quest to find a TNT-containing plants. And he decided that that was, you know, a very important thing to do because the TNT experience was very strange and otherly. And so he went down there, and, and instead of finding the TNT-containing plant he was looking for, he uh, hooked up with some mushrooms that were growing all over the place there. And had a number of experiences with the mushrooms that, that led him towards these ideas about reality and uh, he sort of connected this to the I Ching and the kind of ended up being connected to the Mayan calendar and he created this uh, time wave theory and so that's something you know that I, I would consider very much his time wave theory which you're probably familiar with is very much a drug inspired metaphysical belief there's not you know, if you were to look at it in a, with a rational mind, uh, it doesn't seem to, you know, hold very much water. But on the other hand, he was, you know, fairly convinced that it was true. Uh, towards the end of his life, he became, you know, a little more convinced. Well, now it's easy for me to believe that it's the truth. <laughs> so, you know, he knew he was checking out. And, it didn't matter. But he always had a retained a sense of humor. He always, you know, maybe it's just all a bunch of bullshit. Or actually, he probably was a horseshit, I think. So, uh, so that was one person who's pretty well known. Another person who's pretty well known is uh, John Lilly. He was a doctor who did work with uh, dolphins. He was convinced that dolphins were very intelligent. And uh, and uh, try to understand how they communicate with each other. He also did work with isolation tanks and uh, ketamine and became you know, fairly involved with ketamine to the point that some people may feel that it wasn't so good that he was getting as much ketamine as he was doing. I remember hearing, I, I wasn't at this conference, but I remember hearing about a conference where later in his life he was on a panel and people, it was a question and answer session and people would ask him a question. And every every time he was asked a question, he would answer with the same answer, which was 100 milligrams intramuscular ketamine. That's your answer. <laughs> so he was fairly convinced that it was a good thing. But uh, so he he had an experience. He I think it was maybe his second LSD experience, where his first LSD experience was fairly good, and his second one he was thrown into a kind of a really negative space. And he had to piece the whole thing together later from memory, but what he had ended up doing was 
feeling, I guess, sort of unconsciously suicidal, he injected himself with an antibiotic. Uh, but he was a doctor, he was familiar with injections, it wasn't, you know, uh, a weird thing for him to do, and he might have thought in his conscious mind that, oh, this is a, you know, maybe this will help my, the bum trip I'm having. But what ended up happening is he, he had put some, he cleaned out the needle with some detergent, and there was detergent left in the needle, which was injected into the system, and the bubbles from the detergent went through his lungs and then lodged in his brain, and caused him to go into a coma. And he was found sort of on the floor in the state and rushed to the hospital, but they knew who he was and were taking care of him. And he, uh, he actually ended up going blind for a period of time after that because of the neurological damage, which turned out to be temporary. But uh, during this time when he was sort of in this coma, he had an experience where he met these two beings of light, and they were sort of his guardians, I guess, and they said to him, we're not really two beings of light, we're actually just one being, and you're part of that, but because of your kind of limited perspective, you're seeing us as these two beings, and, um, and we're, we're going to take care of you, and we're looking out for you, and you can, he, he described the place that he was in as just utter joy, a wonderful space to be in, and they said, well, you can stay here, or you can go back to your body, and your work in your body isn't finished, but you know, if you stay here, this is what it's going to be like. Um, so, you know, how seriously should we take these kinds of ideas? And and why do they... What, you know, one of the things that to me is always interesting is uh, like a religion like Christianity, which or any organized religion, which over time will build up certain rituals and certain practices, and everybody sort of, you know, just takes them for granted, and it doesn't seem that strange. Like, oh, there's angels. You know, beings. There are angels that live in the heavens, and, that's part of it, or, oh, this person, you know, came back from the dead. It's part of it. And it doesn't seem that strange, but when somebody is telling you, I am Christ, and I realize this because I took some LSD, then people tend to dismiss that as maybe uh, brain damage or because of the drugs. Or, so, uh, on the other, so, so in one way it's really strange because here people are, uh, who are taking the LSD, they're having this direct, primary religious experience, and they're speaking from personal experience, whereas the people who are just following the Bible, maybe, you know, they actually, they just read something and then they believe it, so which, which is a weirder way to approach it. So, I think I want to move into discussing now the, well, okay, I'll, actually I'll talk about one of my own experiences. Um, I took a brief fifth dose of mushrooms one time when I was camping, and it's probably, I think it was about four grams of mushrooms, and I was just in my tent and you know, with my eyes shut. And I had this experience where I went into what seemed to be like a waiting room uh, of a hospital. Was, the walls were all sort of a drab green color, and there was, there was no one there. It was just me sort of waiting in this waiting room. And these things would float by that were you know, maybe about this big, sort of like football size, and uh, look like giant maggots, but, you know, moving sort of through the air. So I don't know it's sort of strange with these maggot-like things. And then I saw this creature that was about the size of a small dog that was very furry, but a uh, very insect-like creature with a really nasty, long proboscis that looked like it was sort of, you know, mosquito-type thing. And as soon as it turned around and saw me, an, a, an alarm went off. A sound, it made a sound that I sensed it was a, 
it was you know sort of alerting everyone in that realm, hey, there's this thing here and it's seeing us. And so it communicated telepathically with me and it told me, you know, well, first, the first thing was like, what the hell are you doing here? Why are you seeing us? Like, you're not supposed to be able to see us. And so, uh, I don't know, just a few mushrooms. So, it, you know, it just seemed okay with that answer. It didn't, uh, and then uh, uh, it, it explained to me that what it was was this being that lived off of human thought and all of its kind. Uh, and the impression I got was little mega things were the, you know, they, they were beings that hadn't hatched yet, and this thing was, uh, you know, an adult. And so it, it, they fed on human thought, and human thought was their both their nourishment, like food, actual food, and it was also kind of like used as currency somehow. And I got this idea from them, that, or from him, that, or it, that they weren't necessarily entirely friendly, and that some types of human thought were more valuable than other types of human thought. So if you're just sitting around watching TV, maybe that's not that valuable, but if you're having an orgasm, or if you're stabbing someone and killing them, you know, the, the very extreme types of human thought or human emotion were more valuable, and that somehow these creatures would manipulate the human experience in such a way so that they would be able to sort of get these better thoughts to, to live off of. And so it didn't, you know, very parasitic kind of singing thing, and didn't leave me with a very good feeling. I, I thought, well, okay, you know, this is a very strange experience, and I was on drugs at the time, and so how seriously do I take this? It's it, it seemed very real. It wasn't, you know, it didn't seem, yeah. So, so maybe they're out there. So it's a creepy thought, really. I mean, because you feel like, you know, in, in one way, you know, if you think that, that what if an alien being or alien culture came to our planet from someone else and they saw the way that we treat animals, for example, and that we kill them and eat them and bathe them and cage them and do all of these things to animals, that you know are not particularly nice necessarily to do to another being, or the way that we treat insects, we can spray poisons and just you know uh, don't get me started on insects, but I think I think that the insects are the embodiment of the other. They're so different from us. They have uh, an exoskeleton, so so they they're the exact opposite of us. Their fleshy stuff is on the inside, and their skeleton's on the outside. And I think that that not only does it represent sort of the other to us, but I also think that they have what is uh, a death charge to them, which is because of that skeleton, because the skeleton to us is representative of death. And so I think that insects, um, you know, sometimes if you see an ant, your immediate reaction is to squish it with your finger, right? Without even thinking, oh, I'm killing the dish if I kill it, you know? And then, that, so they have so much of a death charge that it's kind of like it's, it's a them or me thing, you know, mosquitoes, people got no problem killing mosquitoes, right? So, so, you know, so it's kind of a crazy thing to think that maybe there's this other dimension where these things are feeding off of us and controlling what it is. So I thought, well, how seriously should I take this? I mean, if I take it really seriously and say that, yes, this is true, what, what can I do? What should I do about it? And the other option is to say, well, yeah, you know, I was just on drugs and it's just something weird that happened that couldn't possibly be true, it defies rational, uh, you know, 
We have no proof for this. It's possible there's misinterpretation. It's also possible that these, if we're going to accept that there are these things that are interdimensional or other dimensional, that they're just lying to us. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how seriously to take the things that some of these things are saying. So, so I wanted to relate that experience because it's an experience that I had where, in the end, what I, I sort of, you know, how I dealt with it was like, okay, well, weird drug experience, and I'm not going to go around preaching to everyone, look, be careful about what you think, because, you know, really, what you think, you know, you're feeding these things, and, and maybe they're, you know, growing in numbers, and um, so, you know, I don't know, but the, the next thing I wanted to lead to was a person whose name is Zoe Seven, who uh, I actually met at the first MindSpace conference that I produced, or this, that was the first or the second, but anyways, one of the conferences that I produced, and he wrote this book called uh, Into the Void, which uh, when I when I read the first, and he you know he contacted me and said, hey, I'd like to speak at your conference. And when I read the first page, I was just immediately turned off by it because it was very new agey, and I don't tend to you know hold a lot of new age beliefs. And, and was talking about, um, well, I'll just read, give you a little flavor of it. Don't let this turn you off from the book because it's a great book. But uh, let us first begin by introducing ourselves. We are Zoe 7, a multidimensional synergy personality cluster. In this reality, we now inhabit the physical body and mind of Joseph Marzi. The other five personalities occupying his body and mind are Max McCullen, Epiros. Anyway, so he lists the names of the different people that are living in his body. He says, as you probably have noticed by now, as a group we are six in number, yet we call ourselves Zoe 7. Let us explain the reason for this peculiarity. The psychological and psychic merger we have recently undergone is a new experiment in consciousness for all of us. This consolidation follows the principle of synergy which combines individual units, parts of a whole, in such a way so as to produce a result that is greater than the sum of the units. Um, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it just seemed like uh, this is a bunch of new age crap. And, but on the other hand, you know, I thought, well, it was a free book, so I'll keep reading. And... So as I kept reading it, I, I realized that, uh, that there were a lot of very interesting things to me. One was that Zoe came to psychedelics sort of later in his life than I did. I think he was about 31 when he first started experimenting with them. And he's, uh, I think he just turned 36. So uh, it was not that long ago that he started uh, messing around with psychedelics. He was doing so in a vacuum. He didn't have any friends that were taking psychedelics. He wasn't, he didn't know anything about it. And sort of a little bit pre-internet, although he was getting some, uh, you know, information from the internet. So he just started taking a whole lot of stuff to just randomly sort of see what it would do to him. Things like, uh, you know, motion sickness pills in high doses. Um, whatever he could get his hands on because he wasn't very well connected. And, you know, he wrote down the experiences that he had. And he's not particularly someone who has had a great deal of uh, formal education. So his book, another thing that first sort of turned me off from the book was it's just riddled with sort of typos and grammatical errors and things that, uh, you know, I thought, oh, this guy's not too bright. But what really impressed me was that he just kept going into the trenches and taking things and taking things and, you know, writing down his experiences. And when I started going through it, uh, I, I would notice over and over again experiences that either were very similar to ones that I had that he described very well or things that I'd heard other people say uh, that they had experienced. So he had a really good overview of the psychedelic experience. 
one of the things that he was doing was he was taking psychedelics along with various mind machines, which can be anything from something that um, fits onto your over your eyes that has a, a sort of a light and sound kind of situation going on and has earplugs where it changes your brainwave state. And he would do that in conjunction with taking psychedelics. Um, and he started realizing that he was having experiences in other sort of dimensions as other people that were just as real as these experiences that we're having here. And he could go back and replicate them. He, I mean, not replicate them, but he could go back to the same person's body in some other, uh, he calls, you know, he calls them parallel universes or probable universes and kind of delves into uh, uh, layman's understanding of quantum mechanics to explain his theory as to how all of this works. And it's a very interesting theory. So, but very out there. I have some extra copies of these books. So if you ha aren't familiar with it and it sounds interesting to you, just take one. Um, I don't have enough for everyone, but I have a few. Uh, so his, so we became friends, and he's someone who I kind of uh, would categorize. If we're we're kind of you know we're very interested in the same things, but we're kind of uh, on opposite spectrums as far as our beliefs about the things that we're interested in. And I would put him more into the camp of a true believer. And by that, I mean someone who, if he had gone through the experience that I did with the insect thing that was sucking our thoughts, he would very much be like, look, there are these insect things that are sucking our thoughts, and you guys need to wake up. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you're laughing, but they're sucking your thoughts right now, and your laughing response to me is, you know, is something that, so, I mean, but, but the, the, the reason that I think it's important is that his experience of that and his embracing the ideas that have come to him in these psychedelic states is from his own experience. He's actually experienced it. It's like I said, it's not, he didn't read it in a book. He went into the trenches and was told various things by these creatures or entities or things. And, you know, they said, well, this is the way to do it. Well, this, this very much parallels the ideas embraced in shamanism, uh, in traditional shamanism, that you go in and you can work in these spaces with those things that you come in contact with. And it's a, it's a very different sort of a belief than the, uh, you know, the Western kind of rationalist uh, or scientist view that we have here. So um, I went down to the Amazon uh, where uh, Zoe was uh, involved in producing uh, ayahuasca sessions, uh, and I was speaking at one of those. And uh, if, again, if that's something you're interested in, I highly recommend that you uh, go to one of these things. I have some flyers for that too up here. I'll sort of in between you so they don't fly away. But um, the next one that they're doing has the artists uh, Robert Benoza and Martina Hoffman, which maybe some of you are familiar with their artwork. So you go to the Amazon, you take ayahuasca sort of every other night, and then in the mornings the next day you discuss your experiences or they have like uh, art painting sessions where you can paint visions that you have. So when I was there uh, with him, we, and we were taking ayahuasca, and um, one of the people who was there was a Peruvian shaman um, named Pablo Amaringo. That you might be familiar with some of his art. This is an example of his art on Lorenzo's shirt. So he is just the sweetest guy and uh, a wonderful man, and he gave up shamanism because 
Um, just sort of a brief reason, the description of why he gave up shamanism is that uh, he was a, a shaman who would heal people. And uh, there are different kinds of shaman, and that in South America, there's a lot of belief that illness is magically produced. And so you go to the shaman to get healed. So he would wake up in the morning, there'd be people who lined up at his door because he was very successful at what he did. And he would heal these people, and the next day there'd be more people and heal them. After a while, um, he started getting very sick, and so he went to another shaman, and he found out that what was going on was that the shaman that were making people sick were pissed off at him because he was sort of negating what they were doing. He was healing these people that should be sick, according to them, because they were making people sick. And so, you know, his attitude was like, well, look, if you guys were just better shaman, you know, I wouldn't be able to cure them. It's not my fault. I'm a guy who cures people. And, and you were people who make people sick, and we used to do our thing, and it's not my fault that you're not you know, doing a very good job. But uh, so a number of shamans sort of ganged up and ended up making Pablo very sick. And so he went to this one shaman and he said, well, you know, what, what am I going to do about this? Um, and what the shaman said to him is, you need to kill those other shamans. You have to, the only way for you to get out of the situation and to continue being a shaman is if you kill them. Because if they're still alive, they will keep fighting you, they will keep making you sick, and it's not going to get any better, and it will get worse. And so Pablo, you know, was like, well, I'm not, I'm a healer, I'm not someone who kills people. And so he decided that his best course of action was to give up shamanism. Um, and so he stopped being an ayahuasca shaman. He doesn't do that anymore. But he's, but he's an artist and he paints these beautiful uh, uh, paintings of the visions that he had while he was on ayahuasca. And it's neat because when you look at his paintings, you can see some things in there that you think, it's really weird that in the sort of Peruvian shaman we have UFOs in their paintings. You know, and how does this tie into our ideas of UFOs? That this is something that, uh, or angels or mermaids or other things that I wouldn't think necessarily. But it's because he's had experience interacting with those beings. So anyway, Pablo was there at this at this seminar, and Zoe was there, and uh, this woman Sylvia Colavoy was there, who's the person who produced the seminars, and, and they're. Maybe there were about 20 people at a session, and so one of these people, we're, you know, we're all really stoned on ayahuasca, and one of these people was apparently um, uh, a psychic of some type. Now, I don't, you know, when someone says that they're a psychic, I don't know, you know, I tend to be skeptical and think, like, okay, yeah, what number am I thinking? <laughs> but, uh, and I have never done, you know, a, a sufficient answer to that, so I tend to be a little skeptical about psychics to some degree, although I've also had experiences which, uh, I had an experience with my friend Carlo, which was very strange that occurred, it's like, wow, uh, almost seems like you're a psychic. So, uh, so, you know, I'm not, that, that whole thing with the bracelets and the salt and, you know, when you were like, oh, you should put those bracelets in salt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, so, so what happened, uh, at any point, if I just seem like I'm rambling, somebody shut up, and we'll get a question. And so, so what happened was, uh, this woman who was a psychic, apparently, under the influence of ayahuasca, became convinced that Pablo was there to uh, steal our energy. Like, he was not there for good reasons. That he was there, you know, to use shamanic tricks and steal our energy. And, 
you know, so so the person who produced the conference or, or the uh, seminar came up to me and said, you know, John, what do you think about this? This woman said, you know, she says Pablo's not here for good reasons, and this is, you know, and she clearly was taking it very seriously because, you know, because she's a psychic, you know, she and she's, you know, and I, I'm like, well, you know, I think I would take it with a grain, a little bit of a grain of salt, and just see how it develops. Maybe she's interpreting things not correctly, or, you know, I don't really don't think that Pablo is here to steal our energy, but. What it made me realize that interaction was how through the use of uh, psychedelics, people can become very primed to a mind state that allows them to believe magical thinking, that the world is a magical place. And that this is probably part of the reason why uh, those cultures that use psychedelics regularly have this sort of belief system that illness is created magically and can be cured magically. And so it was an interesting thing to be wit sort of witness to this kind of a shifting in belief systems where you come into it from a more of a rational perspective and then after doing it for a while you kind of shift into this perspective of you know, well, maybe there are a whole lot of things out there that are beyond belief that we can't explain that um, are just happening and it seems you know, coincidences. One one of the things that Zoe is very big on is coincidences. There's something also that comes up with ketamine users a lot. Um, if they're using a lot of ketamine, is that all of a sudden everything becomes very coincidental and and, and significant. And so, so anyway, the next day with uh, Pablo, uh, the woman said something like, "Oh no, no, Pablo's not here to hurt us. It's, you know, I was I don't know, I was on drugs or I didn't I misinterpreted things, and he's he's here to help us, and everything's good." And so, but it's, at the time, it was, it was a crisis. You know, we were, what, what are we going to do? It's like those insect things stuck in our thoughts. You know, Pablo's there, and it's not good. And, you know, how are we going to get rid of him? So, so I want to talk about another, uh, I, I mentioned ketamine, and I want to talk about two experiences with ketamine. One was that I had here on the playa um, in 96. And it was the first time I had done ketamine intramuscularly. Thankfully uh, for me, I mean, it's making me a little less nervous about it. The person who was shooting me up was actually an anesthesiologist um, who happened to bring a whole lot of ketamine and some equipment, uh, pulse oximeter. And, uh, my eyes are good, it's just my throat is going. Thanks, man. So, uh, so anyway, I got shot up with this ketamine, and, and I'm having my ketamine experience. And I really hadn't had a ketamine experience before that, although I did once I didn't get off on it at all. So part of the experience was uh, a kind of a typical or uh, out-of-body experience, I guess you'd call it. And I was floating above the camp, and I was looking down at, at all of Burning Man from sort of an aerial perspective, and I was seeing the whole camp, how it was laid out, and just floating along like Superman, but not real fast, you know, but above everything, and checking out the camp. I was afterwards, oh, that's really weird to get this aerial view of the camp. But I didn't think that I really actually had been floating about the camp. I just thought that in my mind I created this thing. You know, here I am at Burning Man, and this is the kind of what primes me going into the experience, and so it makes logical sense that I might have some visions of Burning Man. And so I didn't give much thought to it other than I thought it was a neat experience. So uh, next day or two days later, we were going to this Washington Man Burn. And I had taken some TCB for that. And I was walking along and I had this real strong feeling of deja vu. And it was very strange because 
you know, it was a really strong feeling. Uh, kind of everything around me sort of looked familiar, but it didn't look exactly familiar, it just sort of looked familiar. So I kept walking and I had the experience again. I was like, all this looks really familiar. And I knew that I had not seen uh, what I was looking at previously because we purposely were taking a route to the man that we had not walked because we wanted to see more of, of the city. And so after the third time that it hit me that I felt like I'd really seen where I was you know, seeing landmarks, that I'm, but I've seen this before, but I haven't seen it before. What I realized was that I had seen it before, but from above. I was looking at it from a different perspective. So the landmarks were all the same, but it was my viewpoint on them that wasn't the same. So it's sort of, you know, in my mind it seemed like, well, okay, this is really weird because it kind of does seem like with the Kevin experience I had was an out-of-body experience and, and I was actually looking at things. And I don't have any way of reconciling that in a rational perspective other than to say that maybe I was having an out-of-body experience and that that actually is the way things work. So I want to briefly mention another ketamine story because I think that ketamine is an interesting drug. And uh, well, I'll mention two stories that relate to kind of uh, metaphysical things. And the first one is uh, a gentleman who I met on the playa a couple nights ago who I guess was maybe a ketamine dealer, so he had lots of ketamine. And when there's lots of ketamine around, what I've noticed is people tend to get into patterns of uh, a lot of use of ketamine. And so this guy apparently was using ketamine a lot, maybe every day, uh, maybe multiple times a day. And he said that he realized, when he realized that he had a problem, um, was he had these alien entities that were talking to him and that were telling him that they were sort of controlling the world. And so this seems in some way, it's a weird kind of a repeating theme, you know, this idea that there's these alien, sometimes alien things that are controlling the world because of kind of what John Lurie was talking about. And it's sort of that insect thing that I ran into. And so his experience was there were these alien things controlling the world. And how they communicated was that they had altered his DNA um, on the, and, and that they were sending messages through his hair um, to each other over by wind transference. So his DNA had changed and somehow they were communicating through his hair um, whenever the wind blew, they would send messages back and forth. And he had been shaving all his, his body hair off um, because he, you know, they weren't friendly entities. They were, they were, so he had been shaving his hair everywhere because he didn't want the, the messages to be sent. And so that was when he kind of realized, well, maybe I've got too, maybe I'm taking too much ketamine. Uh, and he backed off a little bit. But other people might, you know, go further with that and say, okay, well, you know, the, the true believer might take it further in the way that uh, John Lilly took it further and really, you know, actively sort of understood the world through this coincidence control sensor. Um, another sort of interesting ketamine-related metaphysical thing, a friend told me recently about experience where he and several others were all on ketamine and they'd all entered the shared mind state. So the, I, the idea is, should we make value judgments about these substances with regard to their use insofar as presenting something, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but insofar as presenting something that is truthful um, or useful to us rather than just allowing us to sort of become deluded. I, I was just going to comment that my friend had made a comment about uh, 
different drugs and the reliability of the information that you get through them and you say something like, well, you know, with mescaline, you get uh, kind of 80% of what you get from that. It's good information. It's true and good. And with mushrooms, maybe about 50% of it or 60% of it is true and good. And with ketamine, 0% is true and good. But I don't, I don't buy the zero because I think that my own experience with that sort of out-of-body situation seemed very um, provable. I mean, it seemed like... So, uh, yeah, but I think that, you know, people do need to realize that ketamine is not... Um, I, I've known a lot of people who've had problems with ketamine. So, you know, you can get... Yeah. I have a friend who used ketamine in a way that I could never... To me, ketamine is just very strange and, and uh, a bizarre experience, but I don't find it to be a particularly useful experience. Sometimes it's enjoyable and, and it's always interesting, but it's not something that I've ever felt like when I came back from it, that there were things that I could apply in my life necessarily and cha make changes that are beneficial. But I have a friend who has told me that when he goes into ketamine, it's like looking at sort of at a computer screen and that he can go through um, files and see like, okay, well, here's one, it's a file where it causes me to have the urge to smoke cigarettes and just hit the delete key. And then, and he actually says that it, this, this is something that he uses ketamine for, sort of metaprogramming to change his behavior in this reality that works for him, that he's able to do that. I, you know, that's not something that's been my experience, so I can't speak to it except to say that I believe what he's saying, and certainly it seems reasonable for, you know, I don't think he's lying to me. So, so for some people, I think it can be a useful tool like that. But, and the problem is, you need to, in order to find out if it's a useful tool like that, then you need to take it enough that you know. And maybe if you've taken it that much, then you become sort of deluded. I don't know, I, you know. So, okay, so the idea is that maybe it's better to take natural, uh, naturally occurring chemicals rather than artificial chemicals um, because they have a longer history of use and so perhaps they've, uh, I don't know, maybe they're safer or... Yeah, I think the, the thing about chemicals when people say, well, I prefer natural chemicals to synthetic chemicals, or not synthetic, but artificial chemicals, um, one of the things that happens is that we later then find out that, oh, it turns out like methamphetamine is a good example of synthetic or uh, artificial rather chemical, but now it's been found in a plant. So, um, and DMT, right, and DMT was another one that was, you know, uh, found in plants later after it had been synthesized. So it may be that someday we find LSD in a plant. Um, the idea of building a relationship with synthetics goes into uh, ideas by a gentleman named Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, well, or that's where I'm gonna segue it to. And he has these ideas of uh, fields of energy, morphogenetic fields, what he calls morphogenetic fields, where, for example, if something is brand new, it doesn't have very much or any of a morphogenic field. And he'll use the example of rats running through a maze, where the first time they run through a maze, uh, it takes them a certain while to do it. But then later, rats all over the world will be able to do that same maze quicker. And so this is something, he's a biologist and he's actually sort of studied this and come up with this theory. I don't know that I buy into it or don't buy into it. I don't have a strong feeling one way or another to it, but um, he's actually someone who's trying to take scientific method and look at uh, sort of paranormal things. And one of the things that he's, he's just written a book recently called um, 
the sense of being stared at. And he actually has done studies. It's a real easy study to replicate, so he's got a lot of data points on it. And the idea is that if, if someone's staring at us from behind, sometimes we might get a feeling that there's somebody staring at us and turn around and we'll see that there's somebody staring at us. And so he's actually looked at this kind of in a scientific way. And when you t look at all of the data points that he's gathered, it's somewhere between 50, uh, somewhere between 55 and 60 percent uh, of the time people can tell when they're being stared at. But they can't tell when they're not being stared at. When they're not being stared at, it falls back to random, you know, 50 percent of the time, which is what you would expect just randomly. That 50 percent of the time, if you're guessing, you get it right and you get it wrong. So. He's, you know, he's saying, well, uh, what's going on? Well, he thinks that there's some connection between what the person who is doing the seeing and what they're looking at. The, the objects are not necessarily in our mind that, you know, that our mind is projecting outwards. And that this is one of these things tied into this idea of uh, morphogenetic fields. I wanted to bring up ketamine just uh, one more time with relation to uh, this story that I was talking about earlier where my friend took this ketamine with a group of people and they all entered this singular mind state where they were all apparently you know, sharing one mind. And somebody else walked into the room and didn't know that they were on ketamine and smoked some uh, acacia obtusifolia resin, which is, contains a, primarily a high amount of DMT, and was launched into a ketamine mind state um, and was there with them in the shared mind state from smoking DMT and was very confused because he had never done ketamine and was, what the hell's going on? You know, I've never experienced this. This isn't what it was supposed to be like and why is this, why am I? So he thought that he, you know, in his mind state, he thought that he had kind of broken the world or that he was the one that was responsible for this thing happening because of smoking the DMT. So what's going on there? What's happening when people share um, a mind state from taking substances, uh, sort of telepathic kind of experiences? Art Gordon Watson, when he first took mushrooms in uh, in Mexico with his wife, he apparently had a, a situation where he realized, I think, uh, that his daughter had had a baby. You know, he knew that she had given birth on a particular day at a particular time. Like, oh yeah, and then later verified that that was true. So, so there's some interesting things that can occur on psychedelics that I think fall into like a, kind of a paranormal or ESP or telepathy uh, area and it's very unfortunate that the substances are illegal because it kind of precludes any serious scientific study. All that sort of stuff has to be done underground and so, you know, I encourage people to do that, to try to take things and see if they can test out whether or not they, these things enhance telepathic uh, communications. Your conversation reminded me of something that I wanted to mention. I sort of lost the uh, train of thought. I brought up uh, Zoe Seven and his work, and the reason that I brought him up is because um, more recently he has had experiences where uh, what he is doing is combining a salutive norm and ayahuasca. And so he, he feels, uh, and I don't know if it's true, but he feels like he might have been the first person who has, while on a stick dose of ayahuasca, smoked a very potent uh, extract uh, of salvinorne enhanced extract of salvative norm. And what occurred uh, in doing that was uh, he had this huge download of information from the, these entities that were saying, okay, well, it's very important that people take ayahuasca and salvia together. What we are is a hybrid entity that is being created 
through the combination of these two plans. And what has happened in the past is, is okay, there's ayahuasca and there's salvage norm, but both of these things have kind of been profaned through improper use. And so the download of information told them, okay, well, you got to take ayahuasca eight times, you got to take salvage norm eight times, and you have to start taking them together. And in doing so, you're helping to create this hybrid which is a, uh, an energy that is a love-based energy which is going to kind of help us. Um, those, Zoe feels that kind of we're all in, in danger, that humanity is in danger, and that there are these kind of alien reptilian creatures that are kind of sucking our energy or working on the outskirts of, of uh, reality, what we perceive as reality, and that it's only this hybrid that's sort of going to save us. So. He's, he's moved into areas where, you know, this is, again, this is all coming from his own personal experience with the plants, with the plants that told him these things. Um, so he's, he's taking their advice and he's, okay, I'm going to try to... So another, one other idea um, that I wanted to bring up uh, is, there's, uh, these, in Australia there's these acacia trees that grow that contain DMT and there's been some people who have been cutting down and harvesting uh, the DMT from them. And, there's a resin that's going around, which people are just calling acacia resin. It's from a plant, acacia obtusifolia, which is a plant that you can grow uh, here. There's no reason that people should be growing it. And it takes about five years to reach sort of the tree height, and then you can harvest it. So it's, it's something that's very reasonable and doable to grow here. And, but in Australia, they grow and all over the place. And so this guy went and decided he's going to cut one down and harvest the DMT from it. And he did so in what some people are saying is very cavalier manner. He was just looking at making a buck, selling this stuff, went in with no, without good intentions towards the, the trees, chopped it down, cut it, extracted it, and then he went back to do it again. And so he did it with another tree, and the tree didn't contain any DMT. There was nothing. He got nothing out of it. And so the speculation that these people have is, well, the trees knew that he was sort of like a, didn't have good intentions with what he was doing. And so when he came to cut down the next tree, they stopped their DMT production. They just stopped it right there. But that if somebody else came who had good intentions and was to cut down a tree, that that person would harvest the DMT. Now, I don't know, you know, they wanted to test this. Their, their idea was, well, we're going to create some type of a, a very rigorous scientific test and make sure that, you know, or see if this is actually occurring because they believe that it was occurring. My question is, how do you test the intentions of a plant? How do you, I mean, sure you can test whether or not the plant contained DMT or whether it didn't contain DMT and at what time and whether the human had intentions, but how can you prove that it was the plant that had these intentions to ask the plants? So, so it's, an, it's an idea that sort of, you know, is in some ways it's beyond belief. It's not, but, but this is what, they believe it to the degree that they want to actually, you know, do some testing to see if it's, it's true. I have to say, just on the mechanics of smoke DMT, I was someone who had a very uh, difficult time smoking DMT because I felt, it, uh, felt but for me, the smoke was so harsh in my lungs that I would get a nice big hit and I'd immediately cough it out. And so I, I, you know, I sort of feel like a jackass wasting the DMT. After the first hit, I did not want to smoke another one because my lungs hurt so bad. And so um, what I recently have come across is an idea uh, for the production of a pipe. And the pipe is called the machine. It's just the slang term for it. 
And the way that it's made is you take like a little tiny Hennessy cognac bottle, which you can buy at any hard liquor store, uh, the type of thing that they, you would get on an airplane. And the reason that you use a Hennessy bottle is because the, the way that the bottle is constructed, it has like a divot in the bottom of it with this sort of preformed weak spot, and you can hit that with a nail or a pair of scissors or something and break it out. Um, you could drink the Hennessy first, so you're not, you know, <laughs> unless you're drinking glass shards. Um, but, uh, so, so then you've got this empty Hennessy bottle, and you go to the store and they sell in the grocery store, or sometimes like places like Rite Aid, will sell these steel wool scrubber pads that are, um, it's not steel wool and don't use steel wool because steel wool can ignite. But uh, if you get a really coarse type of steel wool, that'll work. But um, but the fine steel wool ignites. You know, it's flammable, so you don't use that. But um, get the the really coarse scrubber pad steel wool. Soak it in alcohol or something if you're concerned about it containing any kind of oil treatment with oils, or you know, or burn it a little bit first to try to burn that stuff up. But then you just put uh, a little plug of the steel wool in the neck of the bottle, and then um, so let's say that this is it. So you, you plug up the neck with the steel wool, and then how you hit off it is you draw from the hole like that. And you heat the BMT until you put the BMT just on powder on top of the steel wool, and you heat it until it melts but doesn't vaporize into the steel wool. Now what this does is it, when you then heat it from below and you take the hit, what it does is because of the properties of the steel wool, the BMT sort of chases all up the steel wool um, doesn't have anywhere to run to. It runs all over the place, and it vaporizes uh, very quickly. So you get a really big hit of DMT from this pipe, big enough to get off good on one hit. And I don't know why, but for some reason using this pipe, the DMT is not as harsh as it is if you smoke it like in a regular crack pipe or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe because when you're actually burning, uh, the DMT produces iron oxides and things. So. So it's warm. So anyway, um, now I have a good way to smoke DMT, so I'm excited about doing more of that. But for me, DMT is just—it's not particularly. I don't know if it's particularly insightful for me. It's just—it's entirely weird. It's—it's it's just different. It's very different, and it's—I can't—you know—I can't explain. It doesn't seem like it's coming from my imagination. Like some things that, that I take, I think, oh well, I could have just seen that or thought it or whatever, but. DMT is so other that, uh, yeah. So the question is, is if you consume a monoamine oxidized inhibitor prior to smoking DMT, does it make the DMT experience longer? And anecdotal evidence is yes, absolutely. And, and you can even smoke uh, small quantities of uh, harmaline uh, or even, yeah, even just straight serine root um, prior to smoking DMT. It will extend it. It slows it down, it changes the character of it. So what you were saying about it moving so fast, um, that's one way to kind of slow things down a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's concerns about monoamine oxidized inhibitors and consuming those uh, with uh, certain pharmaceuticals that might be, give you either very high blood pressure or very low blood pressure. And so everybody, before you take any sort of monoamine oxidized inhibitor, should be aware of what you shouldn't take with that. But DMT is something that is, is okay to take. I have a, uh, after that machine uh, for smoking DMT was sort of uh, first you know, brought into a friend of mine's awareness, he smoked a dose of uh, acacia resin with it and entered a place, he said he'd never been, and he's had a lot of experience with DMT, and he said he'd never been this far in, and in this place, 
what he became aware of was that uh, we're sort of all one being that has been divided and split up into all these little beings, but that what we are now working for is we're working towards becoming one being again, or the ability to you know, have the knowledge that we're one being at, at all times rather than just through these sort of brief glimpses. And he, you know, he came back really, really convinced, like, you know, he's sort of on a mission now, look, we're all one being. Um, because of the intense experience that he had, after he smoked this big hit, you know, he went in, into this place and um, was having a great time. Well, in this world, uh, his body started convulsing, landed on the ground, started doing the flippy floppy fish kind of epileptic seizure thing. His friends became very concerned and were holding him down so that he wouldn't hurt himself. And, you know, so when he came back to, all his friends were there and it was just very loving, like, oh, my friends are giving me a big hug. You know, he, is how he interpreted it. Later he thought, like, gosh, you know, if I had interpreted it, like, they're all physically manhandling me to make sure that I don't, you know, but every, he turned purple and everybody was very concerned. So that's one thing, you, you really can get, using this machine, you really can get just a huge dose. Um, Apparently it's not harmful. I mean, it's, everybody's probably seen the films of the traditional peoples who blow this stuff up their nose and then fall on the ground and thrash it out and, and, and then get up and do it again. So, uh, but it's, if you're going to be doing it, it's probably good to have some friends around to make sure that you don't, um, you know, have any problems. If you have not taken nitrous while you are on a psych strong psychedelic, you are missing out. <laughs> And I, I mean that really seriously. If you have, I, I've met people, I couldn't believe I'm like, you've never taken nitrous on top of CCB or some. I mean, you know, there's no point in doing nitrous without being on a strong psychedelic, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, basically, it's just it's like slamming everything into hyperdrive. You get, yeah, you just get so much more. It goes to eleven. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah. If you were on a desert island and you could only take one thing with you, you know, so it'd be cannabis. I mean, it's, to me, it's the, and, and I'm not like a daily smoker. I don't smoke a lot, but but uh, it's so useful. It's so useful for introspection and for uh, psychological evaluation and for meditation. And like you said, going into it with intention. And people kind of use a lot of people. And I'm not placing any judgment on this, but a lot of people use cannabis in the same way that a lot of people use alcohol, which is just. Oh, I feel good and it's fun and whatever, but that I think that cannabis is a hugely important tool that is downplayed by many people. Also, I don't buy into the uh, the the text will take the mushroom during the night time. With this, there's this idea if you take them during the day that it'll cause you to go insane. And a lot of people who will ayahuasca uh, rituals hold them at night, and um, I don't buy into that myself. I think it's very good to take these things during the day. And in fact, I think that that you are more likely to have sort of very dark, uh, disturbing, um, like bodily fluids and maggots and going through the earth and just all this very disturbing imagery, which is, you know, it's good to go through that once in a while, but I'll do that every time. And I think you're more likely to have that at night than you are in the daytime. I think you're more likely to have sort of very loving, positive, energetic experience that is not sort of mire down in kind of, you know, banks of blood and wormy stuff. I just, when you were describing that, it actually just reminded me that I have had the great experience during the day, and I used to get this when I was a kid on acid, and it always um, was just right before 
I lost it. Like, it would all come together and snap into place onto this grid, and then at that point, I would, you know, I mean, I was, it was, it was, I don't think they say a bad trip, but it was the thing like, it was very meaningful that this cord was moved there. It's, you know, everything aligned, everything was synchronous, and, you know, yeah, so, so yeah, it was not a good thing necessarily. When, when it locked into place, then it was the sort of the delusional. It's, re it's really easy to get into bad spaces when you're on drugs. It's much easier um, to get into bad spaces. And, and yeah, exactly what you said as far as like going down the wrong. Oh, this, and, and it's a trap in a way because one wrong thought leads to another wrong thought leads to another. So we have to be very careful about that too. Um, on the other hand, some people just don't want to be here. And um, if that's their decision too, then that needs to be respected. But, it's hard. It's a little harder to respect it when it was. I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but for me, it is a little harder to respect it when it seems like it was a drug-induced action. That uh, that it seems like well, maybe if they had been considering that from a non-drug-induced point of view, they wouldn't have taken that action. But on the other hand, I think that uh, if you have a really important decision to make in life, like something very, very important is weighing on you, one thing that I found that works very well is to take MDMA. Um, and consider it from a straight perspective, and then take MDMA and consider it from that perspective, and and to try to equally value both perspectives. Don't just go off on whatever MDMA told you, but to try to view it from those two perspectives. That, that's a hugely helpful tool for me. That uh, I don't use that much, but if I have something very serious that I need to. Okay, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. But I, I do, and maybe Lorenzo will say some more about this. But there's going to be uh, talks here. Um, every day at noon and at two, and so um, is it two now? Have I just been? No, we're not. Okay. So come back, and somebody else cool is going to be talking, and there's a scheduled poster. And, uh, and thanks for coming to listen And again, there's my flyers here, and then also I'm going to give us to just a short commercial plug for this book that uh, Lorenzo mentioned, which is now in its fourth edition. And it's the psychedelic resource list. It's the book that I've written, and it just pretty much is exactly what it says. If there's something related to psychedelics you're interested in, this will give you a clue as to where to find it, including things like research chemicals, you know, and uh, you know, all good stuff. All good stuff. Where to find? Thank John for our additional blank of local lecture, and thank all of you for being here. It's going to be very memorable. A little dusty, but uh, never make it memorable. So there you have it, the historic first Palenque Norte lecture at Birmingham. And I do hope you paid some attention to John's comments about Zoe 7. And the, in the years that have passed since John gave this talk, Zoe, who I consider to be a good friend, by the way, has really moved the bar up quite a bit higher when it comes to consciousness exploration. And right now he's spending most of his time in the Amazon, and it's obviously agreed with him. And we're lucky enough to corner him the next time he comes California way. I hope to have him on as a guest here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, thank you to John for giving Zoe a plug there. And speaking of plugs, I'd like to also give one to my friends Jacques Wells and Cordell at Chateau Hayuk. They've been kind enough to let us use some of their fine music for our theme song here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I guess that's about it for today. I do hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Psychedelic Salon when we'll be presenting Alex Gray and his wife Allison and daughter Zena. 
talk they gave at the Blanque Norte Lectures at the 2003 Burning Man, and it was titled, Art, Love, Family, and Psychedelics. I'm sure you're not going to want to miss this one. Well, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.